0: Hello and a warm welcome, I am Armin Trost, Professor for Organizational Behavior at the Furtwangen University in Germany and this is my course on Social Research Methods. So, welcome back. So, every time you do kind of research, very often things start with a research question. And maybe some of you um, write their doctoral thesis or bachelor thesis, master thesis or whatever, or some of you do kind of research whatever kind. The starting point is the research question and very often you have a hypothesis. So I would like to talk about this this in this episode And before we go deeper into the entire roadmap of how you do research, then uh, I would like to differentiate two different fundamental approaches in research. And one is what we name the deductive approach. Deductive. What does that mean? You, You always start with a theory. That's the idea. You have a theory. Okay? And once you have your theory, then you observe. So first comes theory, then comes observation. This might be any kind of hypothesis. Uh, so for instance, in, in, in social research, uh, could be anything. Uh, something like, okay, if somebody performs in something, okay, doing a task, is it good or not so good when other people are present? We also talk about social facilitation in this regard. Do you do things better when other are present or do you do things worse when other op- others are present, when somebody else is, is watching over your shoulder, so to speak? And you have a hypothesis. And the hypothesis that was, uh, by the way, proven to be kind of valid by a researcher named Science, uh, Robert Science, said that with difficult tasks... It's not so good if somebody's watching you because a difficult task means you, have, you don't have a dominant behavior which is uh, established, so to speak. Uh, if you do something that you can do extremely well, yeah, like bicycle drive, like walking or something like this, whenever you are watched by others, your performance gets better. If you do something new, the performance goes down. That's a, and that's a hypothesis. Okay? And once you have this hypothesis and you have your variables straight, then then you do the observation, however you do this. In an experiment, in a laboratory study, in a field study, using questionnaire, or whatever. So, first theory, then comes the observation. Okay? Makes sense, right? But there's also the alternative approach, and this is what we name the inductive approach. Um, The inductive approach is there to create a theory. So you do not start with a theory, you, you end with a theory. So let's have a, a, a practical example, for instance. Uh, you know that I do a lot of research also in, uh, in organizational behavior. At least I'm, I work with many companies in this in this regard. And when you deal with organizational behavior, you also deal with the topic of leadership. Now, you might have a question, and the question is, does leadership affect the performance of employees? <laughs> it should. <laughs> it should. Yeah, would be a surprise if not. But in which way? Yeah. And is there always the same effect or, 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 or how is it? So let's assume that you know nothing and you are a kind of pioneer in this field. So what you could do now is you could simply talk to people in organizations, for instance, you talk to them, you talk to them, okay, do you have a leader? Do you have a supervisor? Yes, okay, well, what does he or she do? Uh, okay, so, and how is your behavior? How is your performance? Hmm. What happens when managers do this and that? So you, you talk. You talk, 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 and then uh, uh, primarily you listen. You listen carefully. You also talk to supervisors. supervisor, so you spend time with those people uh, with, whom's, with whom ex- behavior you want to explain in the end. And after you have done this a while, you, you get an idea. You get an idea, hmm, maybe in those tasks, this kind of leadership leads to this effect. But in those kind of tasks, this kind of leadership leads to this effect. So and now you have a hypothesis. And your hypothesis, where did it come from? From your constant reflection on what you're dealing with. And and this is interesting. Um, you, you might not collect uh, numeric data, no numbers or something like this. You, you might simply observe, you make notes, sometimes you, you, you have records, yeah? sometimes you make videos, maybe you even collect pictures, whatever it is. So you you you're very, 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 very open in what you observe. Okay, you first start observing and try to end up with a theory. This is the inductive approach. We also refer to this very often as a qualitative approach because the data you collect are not quantitative, but qualitative. Yeah? Okay, so you, we can also combine these two. Of course, very often when. Uh, and the research topic is, is rather new. You might start with an inductive approach, of course. You first listen, you create an idea, you create a hypothesis carefully. And once you feel that your theory is mature enough, you try to, you try to prove it uh, based on, based on uh, data. Okay. So what we're going to do in this course, pretty much, is we're going to focus on the deductive approach. So we assume you, you always start with a, with a kind of hypothesis. This is what we do in this course. So, that's the starting point. And I would like to show you a little bit this roadmap, how very often studies work. This is also pretty much the the agenda of the entire course. So, you have a theory or a hypothesis in the beginning, okay? And then, once you have your hypotheses and the operationalization, straight operationalization, we'll talk about this also... Near future, uh, this is the question of what you actually are doing in your research, design, how you collect the data, uh, who is your sample, and, and all the like. So that's the, the, the work you do, and then you 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 collect the data. This is what you do, right? Sooner or later, you collect data, and, and you analyze the data. Very often, uh, the the analysis of the data is used by, uh, um, on the basis of statistics right so you use the statistics and then i mean that's a, that's the exciting moment where you have all the data you load the data up very often this is a kind of an excel sheet yeah you load it up into your statistic program and then you make your analysis and now comes the exciting moment what are the outcomes what are the, what are the findings and once you have your findings, you look at the findings, you try to understand the findings, and, and then comes the crucial question. Does your findings, do your findings, the statistical findings, do they confirm your hypothesis or not? That's that's the crucial question here. And very often it does not. <laughs> then your hypothesis, either your hypothesis was wrong or your method was not appropriate. Now you have to discuss. I mean, you have to discuss and have to carefully look at your hypotheses and your methods. And and sometimes then you revise your theory. You say, hmm, during that study, we have seen that we could not find the effect that we expected. But uh, now, uh, over the course of doing the study, uh, we got the idea that there is something else coming into play. It's not only when it comes to leadership, behavior and, and, and uh, performance of people, it's not only the situation that matters, it's also the personality of the leader. So in the next, uh, in the next study we should also uh, consider the personality of the leader. So your theory gets a little bit different, maybe gets a little bit bigger or whatever. That's the revision of the theory. And you know, this, this entire cycle of theory, hypotheses, operationalization, data collection, analysis, and so on, that's continuous cycle. This is the idea that this cycle propels you into the truth. That's the idea. You, you, you get propelled into the truth. You get, step by step, you get a bit closer to the truth. <laughs> That's the idea. Okay? So. Um, so, very often you have two layers. Okay? You have two layers. One is uh, the theory and one is the operationalization. I just, I just mentioned this. It's very important. And I would like to uh, explain this based on a very specific theory and surprise, I'll take the theory from social psychology, which is a field in social research, uh, social science, sorry. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about social loafing, okay? So the first thing is I, I, will, I will share with you the theory and uh, then we can look at, okay, how does that look like in terms of theory and operationalization. So the theory goes back to a man uh, called uh, whose name is... Max Ringelmann. Max Ringelmann actually was not a psychologist, he was not even a social researcher. He was he was a, a engineer. And he ran a farm and he had a pretty exciting question. How many oxes, you know, the animal oxes, yeah, do I have to put in front of my wagon or whatever? So that I get the optimal output? Um, Interesting question. You probably have never asked yourself this question. So sooner or later, he came to the idea that he has to apply this question also for human beings. So here's the idea let's assume one person pulls a rope. Okay? And this person is capable to, I have to express this in Newton, but in physics, but now let's say, One person pulls the equivalent of 100 kilogram. Okay, 100. Now you have a second person who also would have the potential to pull the rope with the equivalent of 100 kilo. When they both pull the rope, what will be the total effort they will demonstrate? Is it 100 plus 100? No, it's not 200. It's much less It's much less. So, there are losses and um, there are, there is this loss uh, that Max Ringelmann explained. He said, uh, the group really reduce their, the individuals in the group reduce their individual effort. The bigger the group is. I mean, you can can imagine, why should you, why should you give the best when you're Share the responsibility with others, right? And that happens pretty much when, um, when the task is an additive task. It's important to know because in, in, in group dynamics, we differentiate between different group tasks. And this one is an additive task uh, where the, the total group performance is, is the sum of the individual performance. It's, it's not always the case. Sometimes the group performance is, e- is, is, is equal to the performance of the weakest group member, for instance, when climbing a mountain or something like this. Huh? Uh, but I don't want to go too deep into this. Um, so there is this free rider effect yeah, where, where people lose motivation because of the presence of others. Right? So, and and you, can, you, can, you can measure this with the so-called pseudo-groups. Pseudo what is that? That's a funny funny idea, I think. It's, so imagine, you pull a rope, there's a subject pulling a rope, and you measure the, the, the force uh, uh, the subject brings in, and behind this uh, subject there are more people, but they don't really pull. <laughs> you are the only one who pulls. <laughs> you think the others pull a rope as well, but you're the only one. <laughs> So, now you pull alone, 100 kilo, now there is another person behind you, not really pulling, but you think this person is pulling, 90 kilo, three people behind you, 80 kilo. Yeah, you really can calculate the loss of motivation. That's that's absolutely cool. Um, Also, uh, there is a loss of coordination or loss due to less coordination. When people not always pull with the same forces or maybe in the same direction all the time, you have uh, losses of coordination. So, with the group size, we know the individual performance goes down. Okay? Goes down. That's, that's interesting. That's, that's the theory. Okay? Social loafing. Now, what does that mean? Whatever you do in your research, you always have these three, three layers, uh, two layers. Sorry. The theoretical layer. In this case, it's group size, individual performance. Group size has an effect on individual performance, okay? This is what you believe in. This is what you want to prove. This is your theory. This is your assumption. Right? But on the other side, there's something that we name operationalization. And this is what you actually do. And that's an interesting point here. And this is mainly what we, what we discuss here also in this course. How can you translate the theory you want to prove into a reasonable, appropriate uh, operational design, how do you measure the independent variable? Uh, we're going to talk about the difference between independent and dependent in a minute. But how do you measure the cause, and how do you measure the effect? Uh, uh, do you do something like a pseudo group? <laughs> yeah, like in, in this case. What, what is what is your design? What is your sample? And, and, and all the things. So, so and this must this must go along. Uh, Theory and operationalization must go along with each other. So so the operationalization really is a translation of your theory into the research practice, so to speak. Okay, now here comes something into play that I just mentioned uh, a few seconds ago. And that's something that uh, I will refer to over and over and over again in this course it's a differentiation between what we name the independent variable and the dependent variable hmm? independent variable dependent variable uh, it's really simple independent variable is the cause the variable that that is the cause right and the dependent variable is the effect so we assume a change in the independent variable, for instance, group size, yeah, has an effect on the dependent variable, individual performance. Okay? So, and this is what we always have in social science intelligence has an effect on success in your career. Okay, personality has an effect on your, in your, in teamwork. We can go on and on and on. We always have, we always think in terms of independent variable and dependent variable. And when you have these two, and you say the independent variable affects the dependent variable, then this is a hypothesis. This is already a kind of, this is already a hypothesis, and a hypothesis is already a theory. It does not mean that every theory has just two variables. No, very often it's not. Very often the theories have much more than, than just two variables. Very often, yeah, but, but already... Having two variables and an assumed relation, that's already a hypothesis, that's already a theory. Okay? And now here comes the idea, idea that we very often assume that there is a causal relationship. That's an important term. Uh, we're going to use this term also very often in this course because we really assume that one thing affects the other. The group size affects the performance and not vice versa. Right? It's a causal relationship. One is the cause of the other, and and you're going to learn that this is a this is a tricky question very often because very often in social science we do not really know is there a causal relationship or is there just a kind of linear correlation uh, kind of for instance to give you an example we very often assume that. Um, Job satisfaction affects employee performance. So the happier the people are, the better they perform. That's the idea. Okay, evidence shows that there is something, but it's really not clear whether it's really job satisfaction affects performance or whether it's vice versa. Performance affects job satisfaction. Makes sense as well that you say, yeah, I work and the better I perform, the happier I am. It's not that the happier I am, the more I perform. No, the more I perform, the happier I am. Okay, so hmm, what is now the independent variable? As the dependent variable? <laughs> that's a that's a that's a, a tricky question, you know. Yeah, so we have various types of of, of variables. Very often we have uh, of hypotheses. Sorry. Very often we have an hypothesis saying, the more of this, the more of that. So the, the, the higher the independent variable, for instance, group size, yeah, the, the lower, the less is the uh, individual performance. This is uh, um, the more this, the more then. But sometimes we have if-then hypotheses. If you are a man, then you do this. If you are a woman, then you do this. <laughs> um, So, there are various kinds. And also, what I want you to see is that relationships or assumed relationship between the independent variable and the dependent variable very often is not not linear and not just positive. There are all kinds of of shapes. So, uh, what we very often do is uh, we have two axes and the horizontal axis reflects the independent variable and the dependent variable is um, uh, is, is uh, reflected by the uh, vertical X okay so okay sometimes the relationship between the independent variable and the dependent variable is linear that's in social science that's rarely the case I must say I mean really linear you have something like this in physics maybe but but rarely it, in, in in social science uh, what you might have is a is a positive a positive relationship uh, uh, could also be a negative relationship you could also have a negative linear relationship I mean what we just proposed with uh, with uh, Group size and individual performance, uh, social loafing—that was a negative relationship. Yeah? The higher, the bigger the group, the lower is the individual performance. It's a negative relationship. But sometimes we also have relationships that are uh, U-shaped. For instance, uh, for instance, I give you an example also from uh, organizational behavior. In in organizational behavior or in human resource management per se, or in organizational management, very often we differentiate uh, between low performers, medium performers, and high performers. So, think of a company, and when you look in a company, there are many people, many employees, and some perform very high, some perform medium, some perform low. So, and, uh, so the performance, the individual performance, now is the independent variable, and the, the, the dependent variable is the is so-called flight risk. We name it flight risk. What is that? this is the intention to leave the turnover intention the intention to voluntarily leave the organization to quit so to speak yeah so and the question is who quits and we know from research that those people who perform poorly are rather those who tend to quit because they are not happy with their job they they feel it uh, everybody wants to do a good job um, pretty much uh. so if you if you're not successful in your job you might Leave the organization. Also, if you are very, very good, you might leave the organization. That also happens. But, but those in the middle, the medium performers, they rather stay. So it's a it's a kind of it's not a perfect U shape, but there's this kind of U shape here. Um, and then we also have um, reversed U shape. What is a good example? A good example is the so-called Yerkes-Dodson law. Jürgs Dotson law, law. So the, to put it simple, the the independent variable is, uh, let's say it's it's a kind of a physiological arousal. Yeah. So if you are in the low end of this dimension, you are in a complete coma, <laughs> completely chilled, really completely relaxed. Yeah, very 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 relaxed, as relaxed as you could be. And on the upper extreme, you are. Um, you are extremely aroused. It's the moment one second before the bungee jump. Okay, so you can imagine this. Another dependent variable are your cognitive capabilities, so so your, your capabilities to to solve complex problems, a puzzle in math, for instance, or doing a Sudoku. So imagine this: you are you are in a completely chilled, completely relaxed. You you will not be very good in solving a Sudoku. You have no, And also, one second before the bungee jump, when you are full of adrenaline, if your heartbeat is going 240 per second, uh, you will not be able to do a Sudoku as well. So, the, the best, the best uh, level for performance is, um, is the medium level, really. This is where you show the highest level of performance. So, also that means for, uh, for you, <laughs> for your exam, it's good to be nervous. It's not good to be too nervous, not panic. Please don't panic, but also don't chill. If you're if you going to exam completely chill, that's not good. You should be somewhere in the middle. It's this Jörg Dodson law. It was uh, proven with rats who were supposed to, to uh, run through mazes underwater in stress. <laughs> um, so, hypotheses must not always be linear. They can have all sorts of shapes, okay? Um, let me add one point here when it comes to the formulation of, of um, hypotheses. And I don't want to go too deep into uh, uh, what, I, what I share with you now. Um, there is, especially in philosophy, there is a domain where philosoph- philosophers thought about how we are supposed to do research. So it's a kind of a meta-science. It's a science about the science. You know, philosophy was always about the truth. That's the original idea of philosophy. What is the truth? And in philosophy, there were some great thinkers, some great pioneers who thought about how could we get access to the truth. Um, And there is something that we name the epistemology. And epistemology is about the science of science. And there was one great thinker whose name is Karl Popper. Karl Popper was an Austrian philosopher, and he wrote a great book, which I had to read during my study. really difficult book, I must say hard to read, yeah, conjectures and refutation. And I wanted to pick up this one. He proposed what is named the critical rationalism. And uh, here it's about the, the, the so-called positivism. Positivism says, these are some important terms. Positivism says that it's only true what you really can prove yeah, okay? A hypothesis is only true when you have proved and you, based on empirical data, based on real good solid observation. If you've done this, then if you proved an hypothesis, then then it's true. So it's positivism. And what Karl Popper said, and that's a very interesting point also for you, for you to to think about, at least at one point in your time in your life, he said that you will never be able to, to prove a hypothesis being ultimately true. And that must confuse you now because, because um, I, I said in this, in this episode that deductive approach is about having a hypothesis and then proving whether it's wrong or right. And Karl Popper a brilliant mind and a pioneer in epistemology, he said, you can't prove that a hypothesis is true. You can't. (laughs) Okay, now let's think about this. Whenever you think about Karl Popper and critical rationalism, there must be one picture that comes to your mind. (laughs) And that's something that helps you to remind his ideas. And I'm not sure whether he brought this example up. when you think about Karl Popper, you have to think about swans. Why is that? So there might be a very simple hypothesis, a very simple one. It is, if an animal is a swan, then the color of the animal is white. Okay? We could also put it more simple, saying... All swans are white. Okay, good. That's a hypothesis. Now, how many swans do you have to observe so that you really, 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 really can say all swans are white? You know the answer. It's, uh, it's all swans. Uh, all swans who have ever lived, all swans who live, and all swans who will ever live. Not possible. Yeah, you know this yeah, you might say, isn't it enough to have one thousand swans, maybe? <laughs> yeah yeah, okay if you if you observe one thousand swans and they are all white, there is an evidence. But can you say that it's really true that swans are white? No, never. Okay, and now comes the <laughs> now comes the real brilliant part of this story. How many? Black, green, blue, red, swans, uh, do you have to observe so that you can for sure say the hypothesis all swans are white is not completely true? How, how many? You know the answer? Mm-hmm. It, it's one. It's one. And so Karl Popper said you can falsify. You can falsify but you can never verify. (laughs) You can say that something is wrong, but you can never say that something is true. Interesting, huh? Have to think about this. It's a a fantastic philosophical idea. I love it. (laughs) Mm. Now, what does that mean? It means, uh, and that was the recommendation of Karl Popper, Karl Popper to say, come on, have hypotheses which are bold. It's maybe not the perfect translation. He, he named it uh, a Kühne These for those Germans, for this Kühne These. It's a very bold, uh, courageous, yeah, a courageous hypothesis, Yeah. If you, if you do a research about a hypothesis where everybody already knows, expects their result, then you don't add value or you don't you don't you don't gain more insights about the truth. Okay, I give you an example. Uh, you might do a research about the following hypothesis, saying the more a student is learning, yeah, the more effort he or she takes for learning as a preparation for the exam, the better will be the grade. Now yeah, you can do this. Uh, you, you look at the grades of different students and then you ask those students, okay, how much did you prepare? And then you will find there is a relationship between the effort of the preparation and the outcome. It was not a comp- uh, perfect relation, but there is something in it. And if you do this study, probably you will get this outcome. And nobody will be surprised, and nobody, and nobody will say, oh, oh, that's interesting. So students should better learn, huh? He said, yeah, uh, oh, good idea. Mm-hmm. Now, Okay, here's the thing. There are sometimes students, and you know some of these, who don't learn. Don't, they don't put much effort. While you learn over weeks, while you prepare yourself for exams over a week, they just, the night before, they look at some, and they always get the best possible grade. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? It's interesting. So there is something more in it than just learning. Maybe talent. Maybe... Intelligence, whatever, and now you can enrich the theory. Right. That's that's. Under which circumstances does not learning, for example, still lead to, to 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 best performance? So. Look at things that are not so obvious that are a little bit courageous. Yeah. It's it's better to go this way. That uh, it was a little bit uh adventure into a, into a related area. So. Uh, speaking of these things in a more practical way, when you do your thesis, when you do any kind of research, a starting point or a milestone very often is what we name the research proposal. It's a very, very important thing in the beginning. Uh, let's say this is a one-page document or a two-page document or however many pages. does not matter. It's a short document probably uh, where you outline um, a couple of things. What what is your hypothesis? What is your independent variable? What what is or what are your dependent variables? Uh, what, what is your hypothesis? What do you propose? What do you assume? What is the relationship between the independent variable, independent variables and the dependent variable, dependent variables? Yeah. What do you propose? What is your theoretical explanation? Why do you believe that your theory is true? How, to what extent is that based on current research? What do we already know about this theory? What is your, what is your extension of what we already seem to know? Uh, what, will you, uh, what do you intend to do? Will you manipulate the independent variable so meaning you do a kind of experiment or what will you do? Will you do it in a laboratory? Will you do it in a field? How do you measure the dependent variable? Uh, all, all these kind of things. I'm not saying that all these things always must be part of a, of a research proposal, but you know these are the typical questions where you outline these things. And you also outline why your research question is so relevant at least in the in the applied sciences, you should be you should be clear about why your research question is relevant for practice, and, and also why it's new and then you also add some references. So this is so I just were writing, uh, talking about this document it's a very important thing and it's also uh, for, for many many reasons. If you, want to, if you want to raise money, a budget for your research, you have to have this, right? But also, when you write a thesis or something like this, this is a very important thing that tells you whether you know what you are writing about. So uh, I always ask my students, write a research proposal, and then they show me the proposal, and I say, I don't want to read it. You yourself read it. So who is the customer of the research proposal? In my case, I I, I don't want to see it. It's a coaching tool. You must be able, as uh, somebody who does research, to outline your research question. So somebody should be able to wake you up in the night, in the midst of the night and ask, hey, what is your research all about? Tell me your hypothesis. And then you should not need to think. It should come straight from your mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm clear about what I'm doing here. That's essential, really. So, this part, having your hypotheses and your research questions straight in the beginning, is, I would say, a strong predictor for the overall success of your entire research. If, if, if you're not clear in the beginning what the research is all about, then you can really forget about the rest. Really, it's, it's, it's really crucial. Okay? So, that was the starting point. And in the next episode... we're going to look at the topic of measurement, okay? So thank you for today and see you next time.